Good day and welcome to the University of Minnesota Extension Minnesota CropCast program. I'm your host, uh, Dave Nikolai, along with my co-host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave from the University of Minnesota Soybean Specialist uh, in Extension. And our guest today is going to be Dr. Aaron Lorenz. Uh, Dr. Lorenz is a professor in the Department of Agronomy at the University of Minnesota. Uh, he heads up our soybean breeding project here at the University of Minnesota. But before we turn the program over to Aaron, we'd like to talk a little bit about our crop progress and condition report. And last week, uh, Seth, we did make some progress. How do, how do our soybeans look? And, and what's, what do we look for in terms of happening uh, this next week? Well, I think hot and dry, I think, captures the whole deal. I, you know, the you know, planting uh, basically concluded here. So we've got 99, according to uh, USDA, 99% of the soybeans have been planted and 91% of all of those soybeans have, are up. So it's uh, pretty amazing how quickly things do move when you get some heat, uh, especially when you look at last year, we had 59% emerged on this date last year. And, and even compared to the, the five-year average was 78. So we're way ahead of schedule, or not way ahead, but we are ahead of schedule. Um, and you could even maybe say way ahead, uh, even though we were, a lot of the state was quite a bit behind and then had some weather problems early with some rain. But now it's just pretty dry pretty much everywhere. And so I think, um, you know, I think we're going to talk a little bit about the conditions, but certainly um, it's it's played a, uh, it's it's it probably hasn't, really reared its head about the effect of this dry weather yet. Um, but there are certainly some fields where we have some spotty stands just because it was dry and farmers were used to planting pretty shallow and we just didn't get them into moisture and we haven't had any saving rain since. Well, you know, it, it really is dry. And as evidenced in this crop condition report that came out as of June 11th, indicated our topsoil moisture was at uh, 34% actually listed as short when you compare that to the last year, it was only 4%. And if we look at our subsoil uh, moisture in those same situations, you know, we are at 29% uh, short in terms of that versus only 3% a year ago. So certainly, you know, a lot of difference from one year to the next. And I, I guess the bottom line is when we look across the landscape in Minnesota uh, with one word I would have, and that's variability. For sure. But I, I'm a big believer in this thing that dry springs really help our crop and move us along. Um, you know, I, you know, too much water in most of Minnesota is detrimental. Uh, I know all the traders look at this kind of thing and dry weather and it, they're really, um, you know, they're really bearish on things when we get dry weather, even in, in, in Minnesota. But for the most part, most years, this is actually beneficial to us. The problem is we just don't have any rain in the forecast. And, and uh, every time we get a little spark of something that shows 50%, then it kind of um, dries up on us. Or that 50% all ends up in one little small area. I think you mentioned a place uh, in Renville County, uh, Dave, that uh, got smoked, but, you know, nothing around it. You're right. It was a, just a six-mile, you know, circle, so to speak, in that Fairfax-Franklin uh, area that got... A significant amount of rain, of course, unfortunately, it got some hail with that at the time. But certainly, uh, those types of things uh, can occur and, and will occur uh, when we have these warmer than average temperatures, which we have had uh, in, in this last month. And if you think about it, so we've, we've been about above normal from a temperature standpoint. I think that's fueled some of these uh, thunderstorms and these cells that have come across the state. So 
Hopefully things will even out a little bit more, and perhaps at some time we'll bend this ridge a little bit and get some more consistent rain, you know, from south to north across the state. Uh, but I agree with you. It certainly is a, it's, it's a beneficial to get the crop in the ground, get things going and, and, and so forth, but as crop gets larger, particularly even with a corn crop, uh, we need that uh, consistent regularly weekly rain, so to speak, if we could order it up that way. Yeah, to finish my thought earlier is that, you know, the crop really uses very little water at this stage. There's, um, you know, there is more evaporation, um, but the transpiration part of that ET uh, is really small because the crop is so small. So we're not really drawing much out of that deep soil profile. So what we will see is we'll see big variation based on soil type and what kind of water holding capacity, especially in these deeper soils where we've got these deep, heavy soils that have a really deep profile that, that carries a lot of water. There's a lot of water to, to spend out. We've got a month before we need to get good rains in some of those areas. But then, you know, I'm sure that, you know, there's sandy spots right nearby that uh, will be dry uh, very soon. So I think this is one of those years where we could see a lot of variability across the landscape. Well, it'll have its impact on weed control it already has in terms of activating pre-emergence herbicides and situations uh, with that. So I think one of the take-home messages, Seth, is whether it's soybeans or whether it's corn, is to monitor those fields on an individual basis. Uh, there's a, the variability there in terms of weed control because the competition uh, for not obviously just light, but for moisture will be keen and in, in terms of that if we are limited here, even in an early s- situation. Yeah, I think I, I mentioned scouting every week, but it's, you know, of course, it's it's one of those things I'm really trying to drive home with farmers is that it's easy to think about dry weather and can think that the, the, the weeds aren't doing anything, but they're uh, taking on the heat just like our crop. And so those weeds that did get started uh, when we had some rain, uh, they're going to keep cranking on and, and growing pretty fast here these days, these warm days. So um, yeah, got to keep keep scouting those fields. We're going to see some different species this year, and we're going to have some different challenges, like you said, because of the, um, the the some of the potentials for some poor performance of some of those products. Well, thank you, Seth. I think we'll continue on with the rest of the program here uh, today. Uh, we're going to talk to our guest uh, again, uh, Dr. Uh, Aaron Lorenz, University of Minnesota soybean breeder, heading up our soybean research project here at the Department of Agronomy breeding area. Welcome, Aaron. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me. We appreciate you taking your time out of your day to uh, spend some time with Seth and myself. I think we would like to start off with a little bit of history in terms of maybe your background here at the University of Minnesota. But prior to that, talk to us a little bit about where you originated from, your early work, undergrad, and so forth. But uh, how did you end up here at the University of Minnesota? Well, I, well, I grew up on a farm in Minnesota, southwest Minnesota, um, by Worthington, Minnesota. My dad was a uh, corn and soybean farmer down there, so I grew up around agriculture my entire life. I worked at a farmer's elevator, um, actually New Vision Co-op right now. It's called New Vision Co-op down there in Worthington and Brewster for a long time during high school. And went to a community college down there, also worked down there during my community college years and loaded trains and scooped the rotten grain underneath the uh, the scale and stuff like that. And and then I came up here to the University of Minnesota. Um, I majored in in a major back then called science and agriculture. And uh, I found out that I really liked genetics. I really liked plant science. I really liked agronomy. 
So just combining that interest in genetics and science along with my experience in agriculture naturally brought me to plant breeding. So, so that's, that's kind of where I ended up. So you you uh, smelled rotten soybeans and you wanted <laughs> to continue right. to work on soybeans. Couldn't get enough of the rotten soybeans. <laughs> but you don't uh, you don't breed for rotten soybeans anymore. No, that's right. <laughs> so uh, in terms of your academic um, education, maybe trace that out for us a little bit. Yeah, so I did my, like I said, my undergraduate here, and um, I decided I wanted to go into the area of plant breeding and genetics, and to really do that in a, in a, in, in, you know, at a certain level, you have to go to graduate school, so I decided to go to Iowa State for my master's, and down there I worked in corn breeding um, with Kendall Lampke, learned a lot there, decided to go on for my PhD at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, uh, worked more in the area of corn breeding and genetics, did a postdoc at uh, Cornell in the area of, uh, called quantitative genetics, or basically the study of of the genetic basis of complex uh, complex traits. And then I was faculty at uh, Nebraska for about five years or so, working again in uh, corn genetics and, and breeding technology uh, types of areas. And then I had the chance to come back here to Minnesota, my home state, and take over the soybean breeding program here. And it worked really well for me for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one is that I'm from Minnesota. I really enjoy being back in Minnesota. Uh, my wife likes the Twin Cities area, so that works out really well personally. And uh, I get a chance to put a lot of the ideas I have in terms of optimizing the breeding program, studying uh, the genetic basis of traits actually into practice into a, a well-funded and supported uh, soybean breeding program here, which I enjoy managing quite a lot. So how difficult is it to switch, so to speak, from an emphasis in corn, where you had been for quite a few years, to flip over into soybeans? It's not really that difficult. I mean, the uh, you know, DNA is... a uh, universal language in terms of inheritance, and so that's all common. A lot of the tools that are used in soybean breeding and corn breeding are, are, are common. Um, I guess the biggest difference is, is that soybeans are a pure line crop uh, versus corn, of course, is a hybrid crop. And so the, the structure of the breeding programs uh, varies quite a bit, and some of the questions are a bit different in terms of how you optimize a, a breeding program for a pure line crop versus a, versus a hybrid crop. Well, when you arrived here at Minnesota, we've had a soybean breeding program for quite some time. You know, I, I remember names, uh, Dr. Lampert, uh, Dr. Jim Orff, and so on. How big is the Minnesota soybean program, you know, when you started here? And then, of course, you had to, obviously, you've been working with it and expanding it. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, I've, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a big program here. I mean, Minnesota's the third largest producer of soybeans. Uh, so there's a lot of support for the program here, a lot of interest in the program. Um, and yeah, we have a robust uh, public uh, program here in Minnesota. And I was uh, fortunate enough to establish a, uh, or I should say, in inherit a, a quite um, good, robust program, well-run program for my predecessor, Jim Orff, who was uh, a great swimming breeder, and he released a lot of impactful varieties and steered the, the program in some good directions. And I've um, taken that over, and I've tried to steer it in the directions I think are going to be important for the coming decades. Yeah, Jim was really a prolific breeder, wasn't he? So I'm sure that you walked in. I, I, this always amazes me about breeders and, and the legacy and, and um, you know, the, what you inherit um, when you start these positions. Some people start, you know, basically from scratch in some new programs and others inherit, um, you know, um, a lot of germplasm from their predecessors. And uh, I think there's good pros and cons to both sides of that. It's, it's, I'm sure a little bit is like, uh, getting an inheritance from your grandmother, right? As, uh, having, having to clean out the closet and, and, uh, sort through some things. And so how, uh, walk me through a little bit of those early days here when you came and, and assessing the program f 
from the, you know, the physical assets to the, you know, the, the human resources to all the germplasm. I mean, it, it seems overwhelming to me. I don't know how, how anybody could do it, frankly. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so I, I guess to back up a little bit here, I'm, I'm the only, only the third um, soybean breeder here at the University of Minnesota. The first one is Gene Lambert, who started the program way back in the, I think about 1946 or so. He um, switched over to soybeans full-time from barley as the soybean acreage started to uh, you know, outnumber the, the barley acreage. And uh, then he was around here until about the 1980s, and then, and then Jim Orff took over, and then he retired in about 2015. So, yeah, I inherited a long legacy of, of germplasm and methodology um, infrastructure as well. I mean, uh, Gene Lambert back in the 1950s or 1960s has established our winter nursery down in Chile, uh, one of the first winter nurseries actually that was used in North American soybean breeding. And so I've actually, um, Jim maintained that relationship with the same organization in Chile all these years, and I'm trying to maintain that relationship as well. So there, yeah, there's a, a continuity of um, infrastructure, direction, personnel, germplasm, all the kind of stuff that you really need to keep a, a breeding program going because it's, uh, you know, it's, it, it kind of builds upon itself over time. But I think the important part is, is, is trying to, um, you know, reshape it and make it relevant for uh, future years and future decades. I mean, the the situation in the landscape right now out there <clears throat> in terms of where our varieties come from is really different compared to when Gene Lambert and even when Jim ran this program 30 years ago, where most of the varieties that a farmer would grow out there on the landscape would have been public varieties released from a program like this, uh, along with changes in protection of intellectual property surrounding um, plant varieties and things like that. Uh, that. That landscape has changed quite a lot, where, of course, now most of the varieties, and of course the transgenic uh, herbicide technology as well has changes too. So that most of the varieties out there now are, are offered by, by, um, by private companies. And, uh, you know, our, our, the rationale for our existence now has, has shifted from being one where we're the direct supplier of, of soybean varieties to farmers, to one more of trying to supply that germplasm to some, uh, companies out there that want to use elite germplasm and create competition in the marketplace. We're an important source for educating the future plant breeders that work at such uh, private companies. And we, of course, we study the, you know, the effectiveness of different breeding methods and publish those and make those public to all institutions who may want to use those and try to be that source of knowledge information that can help raise, you know, the uh, raise all boats, so to speak. And, um, and we also do a lot of high risk, uh, high risk, longer term projects, you know, on traits that may not necessarily be important right now, but could be important uh, several decades from now. And they're not something that a company may want to pursue that uh, has to make a profit year to year, but something that could be important. And since we're a public institution, we can pursue those types of projects that are a little longer term and, and higher risk. That's, um, you know, that's a real soft spot for me in my heart because I, you know, I, I think a lot about the, you know, the land grant mission and, you know, I, as a soybean person too, I work with the soybean checkoff and I'm, um, you know, really fortunate to have the soybean checkoff, um, supporting, uh, my program, but it's, you know, it, it's, we're always in this challenge for return on investment and, and everybody wants quicker turnaround. So it's, it's really interesting that, that you're, have such a strong focus on, longer term, um, risky, um, you know, um, not, you're not sure on your return on investment and, and what you're sure are is you're sure of is that it'll take a little while. So, um, I really appreciate that. I'm just wondering how you can justify that and how you, how you fund that kind of work, um, 
for those kinds of, of efforts? How do you, how do you fund making a cross today that may not be in a, in a bag of seed for another 10 years or more? Well, I think, how do you fund it? I mean, I, I think you just have to, you just have to, to have the idea of, of something that could be an issue down the road or a potential that could be out there that could be economically impactful. Um, down the road, and you make a case for it, and then you have to make the case that there has to be this this continuity of research to make that happen. I mean, you cannot develop, you can't take a you know a, a gene that's found in a germplasm collection among a bunch of land races that were adapted to China uh, three thousand years ago, and get that into an elite variety adapted to North America in the year twenty twenty something without lots and lots of work. So yeah, and and lots of years of work. And so you just have to make that case very clear that this is going to be an an ongoing a process that is 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 good, has to have some continuity to it, and you're going to build upon the success of previous projects to to make that happen. We think about uh, accessing you know genetics here in the projects that you're working with from a farmer standpoint. You know we have Minnesota Crop Improvement. We've obviously had a relationship for many many years. You know way back in the early 20th century at the University of Minnesota. Uh, but at that time, you alluded to the fact that even with the private companies, they have access uh, to certain things that you'll be working on as well. How do you decide or make a difference and say, well, this is slotted over here to uh, crop improvement, and that's, that's the ability for growers, or this is in a library, so to speak, where a private company can access? How are those decisions made? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So... Um... Yeah, we still have some genetics that's available through Minnesota Crop Improvement, and they do work with a, a, a network of certified seed growers to access some of those varieties and you know, soybean varieties from here, from places like North Dakota State, um, even some varieties out there still from South Dakota State that were developed a number of years ago. And, of course, they, they also make available a lot of varieties in, 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 in wheat genetics and breeding, barley, uh, breeding oats and things like that. So those, that opportunity is there to access our genetics through that organization as well. Uh, Minnesota Crop Improvement also sort of serves as a broker for us and interacts with the um, some of the specialty seed companies out there like food type soybeans and other types of special uses that, that uh, certain companies may license those genetics and then contract those genetics with growers and grow those things um, where a grower can achieve it you know, on a contract basis and get a premium. So those would be the types of things where Minnesota Crop Improvement would be instrumental in getting our genetics out there in the landscape, either, again, through some sort of public access through a certified seed uh, network, um, uh, certified seed grower network, or through interacting with special um, uh, seed companies where things are grown on a contract basis. The other way would be that we directly license uh, breeding material, germplasm, to companies, uh, and those companies can then use that germplasm in their own program to do with their own breeding, to adapt that germplasm to their own needs, or perhaps we're doing some some um, gene editing or something like that on our material and use our material as a starting point for introducing their new ideas into soybean through gene editing, for example. Is that part of your program growing in, in terms of the last couple of years, that, that accessibility through these private companies, would you say? I think so. The last few years, we've actually had quite a bit of interest in our germplasm through, through um, newer companies, startup type of companies, that have some idea in how they're going to modify a trait through gene editing, and they need a, an elite germplasm base to start with. And, you know, programs like this one and other public programs across, across the country have been a, a good source of germplasm from which those companies can get their ideas out there. Has that changed any of your decision-making about, you know, your um, moving 
moving any of these lines forward? Is there any base um, types of um, idiotype or any type of a soybean that that these companies are going to start looking for? I, you know, the the gene editing uh, business seemed like it was going to be a real game changer um, paradigm shift in terms of you know the large companies versus these the small startups and. I don't know if, if things have really moved as fast or as far as we maybe had thought, but does that, does that, I know you're working with those folks, but does that have an impact on how your decision-making and what you might bring forward and who you might work with? Um, I mean, I, I think it, I, I think that it emphasizes the fact that I think that having a core base, high yielding, well-adapted, just, you know, um, superior, agronomically superior germplasm here for that type of purpose is still important. It'd be, it'd be easy just to, since the, 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 the private companies are breeding for the kind of the st- standard commodity type varieties that uh, farmers are typically growing, to kind of just let the, the companies do that and us just do other specialty things. But I think that this makes the case that we need high yielding, just plain old good material. And uh, we can use that high, high yielding material for this purpose, but also to cross our specialty stuff too as well. Oh, and certainly group two and earlier, I think that's, that's another big niche for you is that, um, you know, we're, we're kind of, the, the Corn Belt kind of narrows as we get, get north of the Twin Cities here. And there is still, you know, there's a lot of acres, but it's certainly not like the groups twos, threes, and fours where, you know, there can be 40, 50 million acres of soybeans that can grow a, a, a three and a, two and a half to a, maybe a three and a half or four. So, um, we're a little bit narrower here, so I'm sure that that puts more pressure on you to continue to have that base development for that base germplasm as well. In terms of traits, you know, for a number of years, you know, obviously when the glyphosate trait came out, you know, we were somewhat limited in a lot of universities and land grant situations because of intellectual property. Uh, has that changed uh, the landscape? Certainly, there are a number of traits and a number of multiple traits in, in, in soybeans on a, on, from a private standpoint. Uh, does that impact you, hinder, help in situations with that, or you just have to keep that in your back of your mind? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's, it's getting access to those traits is the issue, and there are avenues for getting access to those traits. Uh, but it, it, you know, it, it, it uh, can put quite a bit of hindrance and burden on the program to try to keep those traits separate and then manage all the paperwork in terms of getting uh, those traits into the program, all the agreements that need to be signed, have the lawyers on our side agree with the lawyers on that side, um, and then and all the reporting and stuff like that. So it, it adds a quite a bit of, um, I don't know what I would say, maybe bureaucracy to the to the whole process and can make things uh, more, more inefficient, I guess. So, you know, we used to have Roundup ready in the, in the program, but, you know, that's largely become ineffective. And so we're phasing that out of the program. And then the question is whether or not we go down kind of the enlist road or not. And we're deba- debating that right now. I think there are some projects that we have right now in the pipeline that could benefit from integrating, you know, that E3 uh, event into it for that enlist, uh, for, that, for that type of resistance, herbicide resistance. But it's, it's the question I need to, to fully determine yet. Um, I think, you know, just philosophically, o- overall, I mean, where, where do we want to exist? Do we want to really overlap with the big companies in that way? Or do we want to just, you know, be independent and we, we work on novel, novel traits that we discover with other researchers? Um, we can always develop that material. And then if it makes sense to get a, 
a herbicide resistance trait into that material later on that can be done as, as opposed to us breeding with it kind of in, in a forward fashion. It sounds like you can almost spend part of your time in law school as a patent attorney here or something else in terms of negotiation. Yes, right. Well, thankfully, we have some good people on campus to help with that. <laughs> Great. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to just briefly talk about here while we still have a little bit of time, and those are things that are specific to Minnesota, and you can provide a short answer if you'd like, but I'm thinking uh, about uh, soybean cyst nematode and iron chlorosis, um, and they're, they're two of the things, obviously, in, in Minnesota that we deal with. Where are we in that, and where are you in, in, the, in the program? Is this just an ongoing situation, and it's incremental improvements over time, or is there anything that's on the horizon that can leap us into, uh, say, for example, uh, a better situation? Well, um, in terms of what we're doing in our own program, I think there's, there have been a lot, well, let's start with SCN, I guess, SCN resistance. And so the, the well-known story out there right now is that, that the 88788 source of SCN resistance has been a good source of resistance for a long, long time, but it's showing um, breakdown in certain places, especially in southern Minnesota. And I'm not sure about northern Minnesota, but certainly southern Minnesota, there's quite a bit of breakdown going on right now. So even though 88788 is effective in, in most cases, I think growers need to be aware of this issue and look for other sources of SCN resistance. So we've, um, uh, some companies as well, but we too have released some non-88788 resistant varieties, for example, some peaking varieties. In our program, we're working with um, some other sources of resistance like 567516C and, and, and some others as well uh, that we're working through our through our pipeline and trying to improve upon to get them to be adapted to Minnesota and improve their yield and so forth. So, so longer term, we're hoping through those breeding efforts that we'll have more sources of resistance out there in the landscape that farmers can choose from and rotate with their current sources of resistance to, well, just to make, I guess, soybean production more sustainable in the face of this evolving pest. So that's one thing to keep in mind is just uh, the pressure on these new sources of resistance. And there have been a, quite a few sources of resistance out there discovered, I think, but I think the, the, main, the main thing to do right now is to just, you know, do more breeding with those sources of resistance to get those into, into adapted varieties. So that's kind of the issue of uh, the situation with SCN. So I have a question on the SCN thing. So those new, these new forms of resistance, what's your biggest challenge with those? Is that the yield drag you're getting with all of those extra genes that are coming along uh, with those resistance genes? Or is it efficacy and... Uh, on that side of it, or what, what's your what's your biggest challenge? Yeah, it's the the yield drag. Um, I think just getting these things, these sources of resistance into adapted high yielding varieties is difficult. The nice thing about eight eight seven eight eight type of resistance is that it's largely controlled by one gene, um, but the, some of these other sources of resistance require a few genes, and so it's harder to breed that resistance in to our current varieties. So that's that's an issue. You have markers for those? Can you? Can you follow those with markers and then kind of push your breeding program a little bit quicker? Yes, that's what we're trying to do. We do that in some cases, but we're trying to increase that capacity. That's right. And what, what does that do for you if you have a genetic marker for something like this, these new forms of um, SCN resistance? How uh, Does that help you a little bit? Does that help you a lot? Does it give you um, a huge advantage? Does it half your time to... to to bring something out or what, what's your, what's your thought on the, the efficiency of, of having, having good markers? Yeah, that's a huge, a huge part. I mean, that would allow us to, if we had good markers for the SCN resistance, it allows us to make selections in a much earlier phase than we could otherwise. Cause right now, if you, if you don't have markers, 
you develop a bunch of breeding lines, you'd put them through yield testing, and then you can't really afford to test them for actual SCN resistance until a pretty late stage because that process is pretty expensive. So bioassaying something for SCN resistance is uh, quite spendy. You don't want to do it on a large number of lines. Maybe it's uh, $70, for example, to bioassay a variety for SCN resistance versus running some molecular markers for that is maybe just a few dollars. So we can do the numbers game really improves when you have molecular markers. You can grow a thousand plants and then assay all those with, assay all those with your markers and uh, make some selections versus you can't even imagine doing that when you actually have to put them in a lab and bioassay them. Yeah, and, and certainly even from a time standpoint, theoretically you should be able to run them through the lab and do your markers, um, as, you know, your markers on them a lot quicker than you could ever um, be able to have a, have any kind of a close to a generation or two of SCN on these things. That's right. That's right. Is uh, iron chlorosis uh, in a similar approach from a breeding standpoint, or is that more difficult? Certainly, putting things out in the field is unpredictable too, as we can yeah. see it's weather impact and location, and you're not assured when you go to the field that you're going to really have those, this, you know, the situations where you can develop. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Iron chlorosis is a really tough one. One, you have a situation where it's hard to find. Uh, I mean, basically, there is no resistance that exists with just, you know, a handful of genes, just one gene or two genes. Like it is the case with SCN resistance. Like I said, the 88788 type of resistance is largely controlled by one gene. Peking type resistance is largely controlled by two genes. And so it's kind of a handful of genes type of situation. IDC resistance is, is highly complex genetically. So even the most important genes that control uh, resistance to the stress only control a really, really small fraction of that resistance. You make it, you know, a one point difference having one gene versus another gene. So that's, that's, uh, that can be, that can make things difficult. And the phenotyping is also difficult because like you said, you can't, it's really difficult to replicate those field conditions in the lab. And so we can't really do much in the area of growth chamber tests and greenhouse tests. And you can to some extent, but those are also quite laborious. And, and the relationship to the, the situation in the field is, is unpredictable. So what we try to do, what we try to do is we try to have these IDC nurseries out in the field. And, um, but like you said, some years you get good symptoms, you get good pressure and some years you don't. So it's a real, uh, it's a real dilemma dealing with this, this trait. One thing we've been trying to do is to build some more sophisticated, complex, multigenic models that can can do a better job of predicting things in the field than just kind of a, you know, a single gene or um, a small handful of gene type model. Another thing we're trying to do is is use more imaging for better uh, quantifying the stress in the field as opposed to using human ratings. We're trying to take images with uh, with UAVs and analyze those images, try to get more more precise. Uh, level of um, a level of symptomology, I guess, in the field. And then I'm also working with one of my colleagues uh, up here, Bob Stupar, who works a lot in the area of gene editing and genomics. And him and myself and a, a few students that we've uh, been fortunate enough to co-advise are working on, on mapping a gene that controls, controls resistance. And um, we think we're doing a pretty good job at that. And we think we're pretty close. And if we can identify this gene, that may give us some insights into how the plant actually responds at a molecular level to IDC stress. And then he could use his tools in the gene editing lab to perhaps, you know, um, improve this beyond the levels we see, we see in the, the native or natural germplasm base. So who yeah. knows? That's what we're going for. 
That, that actually leads right into my last question for you here is really what, you know, what's exciting? What's the most exciting? You're, you're, you've got your hands in a lot of different things. I mean, I know some people may think that you're a soybean breeder, so that seems very singular and focused, but um, you deal with, um, you know, a, a lot of complexity and, and, and deal with breeding on very, a lot of different levels. So what, What's exciting? What what new projects do you have? What what uh, you know? What kind of gets you up and going um, in terms of getting into work? And and what uh, what what are you uh, what are you hoping for in in the next year or so? Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. So there's a lot of different answer, ways I could answer that question. Um, just off the top of my head, I guess I would say what I would say is an exciting project we have going on right, right now is this. Um, this large multi-institution project we have that's that, that's called SoyGen stands for Science Optimized Yield Gains in Soybean Across Environments, and the idea the, the idea behind that is that we're trying to pull together all these public institutions who work on soybean breeding and genetics across the upper the upper Midwest here and pool our resources and our know-how and build uh, models to predict what we call genotype by environment interactions in soybean. So we've developed some special panels of soybean genotypes for this. We're applying genomics, advanced genomics to this, coupling that with methods, methods in genomics-assisted breeding, combining that with, um, with uh, weather databases and trying to put this all together into some, into some modeling to try to predict the future performance of soybean under you know, certain climate change types of scenarios. So when you think about it, a breeding program, we're taking measurements on yield and we're making selections for the, the current weather conditions, the current climate, but in reality, we're trying to develop soybean varieties for things, you know, maybe, you know, 10 years or more down the road. So can we start making selections for soybeans right now for the situation that soybeans might, you know, encounter weather-wise 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now using climate change models? Or could you breed for a soybean for Missouri? So, you know, the same, same types of questions probably. Yeah, that's right. So if the climate here 30 years from now looks more like Missouri, can we start breeding soybean germplasm adapted to Minnesota for a situation looks like Missouri 30, 50 years from now or whenever that might be? Maybe you're going to make such good progress, you're going to run yourself out of a job here. Maybe a single, single person sitting behind a computer can do your whole thing for you for the whole, whole country. What do you think? I don't know. That's a good question. I think, uh, I don't think it's that easy. Um, I think that there are some, some places that are pursuing that model, trying to make everything really more centralized. I think there's some efficiencies to be gained there for sure, but I think uh, you're it's gonna you're gonna have a hard time replacing that boost in the ground type knowledge, because one thing you can only if, if you're gonna do modeling centrally, you can only work with the, you know I guess with the, the data you've actually seen the variation you've actually seen, uh, you're not gonna be able to see those you're not gonna be able to see centrally those things that you have not actually seen in the field, right those new things those those new uh, um, Phenotypic variations that arise in the field, you can't discover those if you're just behind a computer in a lab someplace. So boots on the ground are important. So you're going you to, breeders are going to have to continue to get out of their office. No, you need, you need both. You need the, the know-how in terms of the, the computational work, the genomics work, but you also need the boots on the ground in the field looking at the phenotypes. Speaking of the field, just as we close out here, um, maybe recognition. Uh, how large is your staff right now in number of graduate students? Uh, other other staff, you still need people out there to make those crosses that I see laboriously working out there in the hot sun, making those crosses and under the umbrellas and so forth. But uh, how many people is in, is entail here at the University of Minnesota uh, in, in your soybean project? 
So staff-wise, we have about um, there are six staff members in our group right now, and they're really fantastic staff members who do a really great job and work really hard. I think one of the hardest things about working, anybody who works in agriculture knows that the hardest thing about working in agriculture, I think at least, is the seasonality and the deadlines, right? Having to put the long days in, the long weekends in to get the work done before before you can't any longer for weather reasons. And so they do a really good job at that. So City uh, helps manage the program. Sonia, Leo, Raphael help to uh, you know get things planted and keep things moving, manage the fields and so forth. And then Jen in the lab helps run our molecular markers. And then we have um, a couple of postdoctoral research associates and four graduate students at the moment and uh, countless dedicated undergraduates. Well, certainly a good opportunity for anybody listening and interested in this as a career path. Uh, I think you're always willing to visit about that. I mean, we have people that are in undergrads in various sciences and biology, but certainly an opportunity to take a look at in terms of whether it's soybeans or other breeding programs as well. I think that's going to be the issue for many years to come, uh, irrespective of what we have for weather, climate, you know, et cetera. It's still going to make uh, a lot of people in those relationships to make things work. You know, and this is a good time to put a shameless plug in for our soybean checkoff, right? So what, uh, what percentage of your funding for your project uh, for this large project does come from the soybean checkoff, either state or regional or a national level? Oh, it's a lot. It's, um, I don't know, it's hard to put a number on, but uh, at least I'd say 80% or so of the funding comes from the checkoff in some form or another. And we're really fortunate to have that support. And, you know, there's the monetary support. But um, one thing I've learned about coming to soybeans is that there's a great relationship with the soybean council and the interactions with the farmers and the soybean council staff has been have been really terrific. And so, we need to keep that conversation going between the researchers and the farmers, and the council does a good job at helping to facilitate that. And that's, uh, you know, the, it doesn't, uh, these things don't exist here at the university campus or in the Twin Cities. It happens out there in the landscape. And so keeping that connection is really important. Well, thank you very much, Aaron. We do appreciate you coming in today, giving us the information, background, where we're at here at the University of Minnesota and the Soybean Breeding Project. Uh, certainly a lot of implications for things yet to come. And so uh, thanks again. Uh, so our guest today had been Dr. Uh, Aaron Lorenz, professor at the University of Minnesota in Agronomy Department uh, in Soybean Breedings. My co-host, uh, Dr. Seth Nave, also an Extension Soybean Specialist. Uh, thank you again for attending today's version of the episode, Minnesota CropCast. <laughs>